Welcome to the Heart of Sports with Jason Springer and Jeff Cohn, powered by Eli 825. We are thrilled to join you on WWDB 860 AM, part of the Beasley Media Group, ready to help you move into the weekend talking about all the news in the world of sports. Jeff, as of the other day, I didn't know if we were going to be doing a show this week. I'm glad to be talking to you. How are you doing? I'm upright. Uh, that is an improvement over what you've had this week. Uh, when we last spoke, you were about to head out around the country with your son going back to college, uh, see a bunch of baseball, uh, return him to school. Tell me what's happened since. All right. Well, we'll talk about the baseball in a minute. Um, I don't want to preach, but for anybody who's listening to the show at any point, what's going on with COVID? We don't we talk about a lot because we want to talk about sports and we want to take people's mind off of it, but it's hit close to home here to me. And for those people that don't think the vaccine is worth getting, I had it. And uh, this week, I've been bedridden for basically a week. And I've had to have treatment. And it has been very, very hard. Um, and I'm just telling everybody out there, get vaccinated. It does make a difference and you will stop hopefully the mutation and you will make sure that your loved ones and the people around you don't get ill. And you were told you'd be more sick if you weren't vaccinated, given your vulnerabilities. I've heard things from medical professionals this week that scared you that, that, that send a chill down your spine. Um, and I am thankful to everyone who has been helpful to me, um, has been helpful to people that we all know. Um, and I, I've been thankful to you and the people around me. I'm lucky. Uh, I had people around me that were checking in on me. Uh, you know, for people that don't have it, make sure you have a thermometer in your house. Make sure you have a pulse oximeter in your house. Make sure that you have supplies in your house because it's something you don't think about. Um, and make sure to check in with the people that care about you because uh, it's not just you that's affected. It's the people around you that are affected. Yeah. I, uh, when you told me about it, I was obviously uh, with my family and, you know, was checking in. Uh, I'm glad you finally got a little sleep. Uh, we are going to do the show. We've got plenty to talk about. We've got Tom Hausnick joining us at 410. Uh, we'll have Jamie join us next week. He had a little bit of a, a holdup with his family. So we'll do our college football breakdown with him on next week's show, most likely. Uh, and then we'll talk to Christopher Clary at 430, talk a little Roger Federer and tennis with his amazing biography. Jeff, tell me about the trip. You know, we've, we've talked about how you're feeling. Um, I know you, you know, obviously how it ended is not what you hoped for, but you hit four stadiums in four or five days taking your son back it's kind of a sports person's dream uh tell me about it yeah so a long time ago it sure certainly seems like uh, my son had to go back to college so uh we decided to drive across the country and somehow made it we started here in philadelphia going to a phillies game but uh, we then proceeded to go to a game in cincinnati a game in St. Louis and a game in Kansas City, as well as also going to the Negro Leagues Hall of Fame, Baseball Hall of Fame. So and it was a it was a pretty cool baseball trip. I will tell you, since I, I know you don't gamble, um, but if you decide to again, uh, all four home teams lost. So next time we go on a baseball road trip, uh, if I can go out in public again, um, 
I strongly urge you to follow where we go to baseball games and bet against the home team. I'll probably pass because if I gamble, <laughs> my mom would be the one to kick my butt for that one. But I was actually interested in addition to the baseball game that you went to, uh, you saw a little Churchill Downs. Tell me about that surprise stop. Well, it's, it's since I was a kid, I've always wanted to go to Churchill Downs and see the Kentucky Derby. And we happened to be driving through uh, Louisville and I had no idea. I always thought, I don't know about you, I always thought Churchill Downs was like someplace out in the middle of Kentucky by nothing. It's literally right next to the University of Louisville. You can see the football stadium right next to the, the Kentucky Derby field. And so, and the, which is right outside the city. So we decided we were driving through, let's see if we can go just look at it. And there happened to be a tour. So we did a tour of it and it's, you know, it's such a historic place. I'd love to, I don't even care if I went to the Kentucky Derby. I don't need to wear the silly hats and do all of that stuff. I'd love to just go to like any old horse race there and I'd be happy. Tell me about the experience, uh, because we talk about it a lot with, with your son seeing the games. This has been your guy's thing. And I know he's older now. I know he's going back to school. But you told me a fun story of a jersey search that you guys had. Like, tell me about those things where things come a little bit full circle when you get to do these journeys. Well, I mean, we've now been to 29 stadiums, which oddly means in, in math, you would mean, mean you need one more stadium. You te- we technically need three because we've been to two Yankee stadiums and two Texas Rangers stadiums. So we have three left so after this trip. What three left on the list? Uh, the California Angels or whatever we're calling them this year. LA Angels. Um, <laughs> that correct? <laughs> the, the, the Miami Marlins or Florida Marlins, depending on what we're calling them. Okay. And the Toronto Blue Jays are the three teams, okay. but it, 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 it was pretty good. There are three very different stadiums. Um, Cincinnati, you would think they're in the middle of a playoff hunt. You would think somebody would be there. There was nobody there. And it was against the Cubs, which is their rival. Not from the pictures that you showed me, there was nobody there. No, they're, they're, they're fans. They don't have any. It's, it's very strange that they have a baseball team. Um, and then you go to St. Louis. And the last time I saw a St. Louis baseball game was in 1986. And it would, that was when they were in the old Bush stadium, which was the same as our vet. Um, this stadium is gorgeous. Absolutely gorgeous. Um, and then you go to Kansas city, which is an older stadium with the waterfalls and stuff like that. But there were three very different stadiums, but compared to ours, I think uh, they all come in second place. Well, you started it off at Citizens Bank Park, and I, I want to circle back there because we'll get to Tom Hausnick in a few minutes, but I believe Sunday was the game you saw there. Was that the Aaron Nola game where he yeah. lost? You know, the, the whole it's Nola day isn't as fun anymore. Well, uh, a lot of the pitching has had challenges. The starters have a 4.10 ERA over the last 12 games. That's the 12th best in the majors. They haven't been the problem, though. Um, well, I, it, it hasn't helped. If you're not, if you're not going to go deep in games, then you have to get to the problem that you are going to point out, which is the bullpen, which still stinks. That's been a, a regular dumpster fire all season long, but then you don't go to the bullpen. That's what I didn't understand the other night. And look, I get managers are there to be second guessed, but I, in fairness, you may have been like passed out on the floor trying to sleep, but I was texting you in real time saying, I don't understand what Joe Girardi's doing 
going to uh, to Zach Wheeler in the ninth. And then after the first hit, almost left the stadium anyway, I said, I don't know what he's doing keeping him there. What was the reason of getting Ian Kennedy here if you're not going to use him in that situation? That's what I don't understand. I, I don't, you and I have talked to managers of different sports at different levels. And we've talked regularly about the roles of players. And this team continues to not define clear roles for people. I'm going to ask Tom Hausnick about it in a minute because Spencer Howard this week had an amazing. Yeah, well, hold on. Save save your powder on that one. We'll get to. But but, but here's the problem. I thought when they brought in Joe Girardi, it was to go a step back in time to work the way that you just described, which was to go the old fashioned. Everybody has a role. And the get away from Kapler baseball, which was all this goofy nonsense that was going to be all analytics. And he doesn't seem to be following the formula that you and I would like him to follow. I'd like any consistent formula. Some nights they go to the bullpen early when the pitcher seems like they're pitching well. Some nights they leave the starter in when it looks like they're starting to tire. I I just don't. Well, why, why don't why don't you ask somebody who actually knows more than we do? Well, we made sure to find somebody who knows what they're talking about with baseball of more than me and you, Jeff. Tom Hausnick, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Morning call. Jeff just told us about how he hit his 29th stadium around the country. I'm still interested in what's going on with the Phillies. Can you explain to me what I'm seeing on the field these days? Uh, I guess we're seeing a, a rinse and a repeat of what we've watched what the last three, four years. It's just... Uh... You know, some of the names are changed. I mean, you feel you feel for Reese Hoskins, um, but this is a organization organizational wide problem that uh, is not getting fixed. Um, you would think that Dave Dombrowski's moves a couple of days ago are a step in that right direction, um, but Phillies fans want it now. They want it yesterday. It hasn't happened. Uh, they've been waiting for this whole decade. And it looks like we're looking as another September disappointment. So you mentioned Dave Dombrowski's moves uh, for our listeners. Brian Manitti and Scott Profrock are no longer assistant general managers. They'll be consultants. They had come on under previous regimes with Andy McPhail and Matt Clintac. And Josh Bonifay, who the team made a big deal about how they were going to change the approach of the organization with hitting. And he came from a place to a good reputation. He'd been with the team since October, 2018. He's been offered a job as a professional scout, but won't be back. Can you talk about the significance of those changes from an organizational standpoint going forward? I think that Nebraska, you know, again, we had to give him some time to kind of evaluate the entire the entirety of what he was taken on. And uh, I think it was clear to everybody who's been here watching this for several years that the minor league system uh, was not getting better. And in fact, it has gotten worse. I mean, you're ranked 27th or 28th, depending on who you read out of 30 teams, your minor league system. And that's just, you wonder how that can be. Um, it, it hasn't, it's not like that they were once one or two and now all of a sudden they're just having a bad stretch. I mean, this is, this has been going on for a while. We're watching number one picks seemingly top out at double A AA or triple A. And that, that just can't happen repeatedly. You look at the, the organizations that win and they don't swing and miss at so many, so many draft picks. And, you know, the, the Clentac Kapler era probably, you know, push back this, this movement, uh, you know, two or three years. And 
again, they were desperate to try something that didn't work. Um, I think Dombrowski's moves are, are encouraging moving forward, but again, it does nothing for, for the rest of 2021, but I don't think he went out and who's to say he's done, but I, I think he needs to go farther. There's some people in the organization who still have jobs that they were deemed not right for the positions they were in, but they just moved them somewhere else. And the Phillies clearly have a hard time just saying goodbye. And I think that that might need to be done with a whole bunch of people. And instead of just reorganizing, because ultimately those people still have jobs and they still have a voice. So if their voice wasn't right, you know, two, three, five years ago, why, you know, even though the title is different, why is it still right now? And, you know, you have to look at a lot more than just those three names and, you know, to lay those three out, it's, it's, it's more than that, but it, it's a big start because, you know, Bonifay was supposed to be the guy to, to change things. And that has not happened. The pandemic didn't help anybody, but that, so that can't be an excuse. Uh, you know, we're looking at a system now where, where I'm watching in AAA, I'm watching guys get called up from, from low A ball all the way to AAA to fill roster spots, guys who have, you know, who are barely out of college, guys who have never hit above 200 professionally are getting promoted two levels because they don't have guys that they can put on a AAA roster. And so, you know, I'm watching the teams come in to Coca-Cola Park, uh, other organizations, and that's not their problem. You know, we've seen the Scranton Wolves yeah, so, Rail Riders, you know, 40 games now, maybe, if you include the all-site games. And they've got an abundance of guys there uh, at their beck and call at all times at AAA because they're going to get, you know, the Yankees are going to use you and they're going to need you. And we've seen their injury situation throughout the season to know that they've had to dig deep into their system and look where they're at and look where the Phillies are going. It's just, so Tom, you know, it's, just, so Tom it's, it's very frustrating. Tom, when you, when you deal with the farm system, you talk about two components. One is talent evaluation and scouting. And the second is development. We, we've now heard from Spencer Howard on, on the latter part of that. He certainly has the talent and his complaint about the, the player development. We've seen kind of the same thing when it came to what they did with Scott Kingery. Is the problem, I'm sure it's both, but of the, of the two, if the, what would be the one that you would want to fix first? Is it the talent? Is it that there's no talent in the farm system right now? Or is it that they're not developing it properly? I think the longer problem has been the development. Uh, when I first watched Scott King replay, I had no doubt in my mind that he had the capability and this wasn't a stretch to play 10 years of gold glove baseball at second base in the major leagues without question. And then, then things changed and it wasn't Scott that changed. Um, it's not fair to put that on the player that, you know, either he stopped working hard or he tried to, you know, he tried to be a home run guy. I mean, he, that was the last thing he thought he was and the last thing he wanted to be. He liked hitting the ball and running and he loved playing second base and he was the best in the entire system the Phillies have had in a long time at that position defensively. And now look where he's at. You look at, you know, Reese Hoskins for a while and what they tried to do to him. Um, Spencer Howard, the first time I saw him in double A, there was no question in my mind. He was a major league number three guy for a, a long time. And you can put a lot on, you know, the shoulder issue, but it, it's much deeper than that. Uh, I hope I hope he gets it straightened out. Texas is a tough place to to be a uh, 
to be a pitcher, but uh, the kid has the stuff. I just hope that um, it works out for him. But you look at a guy like, you know, you look at a guy like Cole Irvin. He was never in their plans because he didn't fit the developmental model that the Phillies have. And yet he's doing just fine out in Oakland. Now, again, different ballpark, but bottom line is he's facing American League lineups day in and day out, and he's given six innings a night. And that's the kind of guy he is. He's a grinder, a 3-4 guy that the Phillies are starving for now because they don't have anybody to fill these spots when Zach Eflin goes down or, or their four and five guys don't work out. So you're, you're looking to see these guys move on into other organizations before they've you know, beyond the point of being fixed. And Cole Irvin obviously wasn't at that point. He had his one, you know, he had his one or two shots and that was it. And now look at him. He's in a perfect spot. And again, maybe that's a better spot period, but I knew that I, you know, I knew that Cole Irvin was a major league pitcher. The Phillies, I don't think the Phillies really believe that. And the way they used him uh, is proof that um, they didn't believe it. So I, I think there's a lot to be said for the developmental side that has just has to be completely changed. And I'm just, you know, Again, that takes a lot and more beyond just those, those three moves that they announced earlier this week, for sure. Look, you're, you're talking to two members of the Cole Irvin fan club. We enjoyed getting to talk to him many times when we would come out and visit you guys at the ballpark there. And uh, he clearly was never a part of their plans. You know, you mentioned Scott Kingery and, and him kind of being yo-yoed around, uh, trying to save him before it's too far. I'll ask you about their latest name, Alec Bohm, who, you know, they were, if we're being honest, there were questions about Alec Bohm when he was drafted. Um, you know, questions about whether he could be a major league third baseman, not about his hitting, which he's seems to have no plan at the plate now and is, is very losing his own confidence up there. But his defense is clearly a problem for a team that has bad defense. And now he's back down trying to figure out his swing. What are you seeing out of him and what do you expect? Yeah. I, He's one who, you know, clearly, like you said, there there was a clear evaluation of him that said defense is going to be a problem no matter what. And, you know, he's, I, you know, the ballpark this week, I, again, it doesn't say it didn't happen, but he, he's not out there at 2 o'clock taking extra grounders at third base. That doesn't mean it's not happening and there's not work being done uh, outside of the eyes of, of us watching on the field. But that that's where, that's where I think – when things you know, you're going bad as a hitter, everybody goes through that stretch, and it was you know they kind of left him up there. He they weren't yo-yoing him like Mickey Moniak or or some other guys. They left him up there to just kind of work through those slumps offensively. But when the defense went, I got to think that he's thinking you know, in his mind as a young guy, he, he has, you know, he's got pride. Now I now I'm not a value with my glove or my bat. So they they both kind of just you know knock you around a, a mentally, and you're thinking okay what can I do for these guys? And you start pressing and it just gets worse, but he already was below average defensively. And then you, know, you boot a couple of balls, you throw a couple away. Next thing you know, you can't get out of your own head. And um, they're to the point now where like, he should be just ground ball after ground ball after ground ball. And if you don't think that he's going to make it as a third baseman, then those ground balls got to come at first base because those are your options. He can't, he, he's not athletic enough to play a corner outfield spot. So you have first or third or, before he's completely in a situation where Scott Kingery is, you know, you try and move him and get something for him because what he needs to do right now is to be of value at some point, at some at, at some some aspect of the game. And right now he's struggling. On the first inning of the first game in AAA last this week, he made his really nice over the shoulder catch, and everybody was like, "Wow, well, you know, 
he's having defensive problems, but it's the problems with the routine plays. If you're not making the routine plays, you know, making a spectacular one every once in a while is not going to cut it at any level. So um, that's where his problem is at. And again, he, he's not very athletic. And again, uh, who knows how we would all be if we were, you know, six five and two hundred ten pounds, wherever he is. I mean, it's not the easiest thing to do. But they've got to figure out what they've got real fast with him. Uh, they were in a situation where they had to they had to they had to put him up there. Um, and that's part of the problem is that as soon as somebody shows any semblance of life, I mean, you know, look at the Luke Williams situation this year. Anybody who has any hot streak in them, chances are you're going to get a shot real quick up there. Nick Maton got thrown into a, a situation, but it's, you know, this is going to happen with all guys. After you get a hot streak to start your career, you're going to go into, you're going to figure you out a little bit. There's going to be a book on you and you're going to have a slump. And so what's Maton been doing since the slump? Yo-yoing back and forth. You know, so they're, what's going to happen with him in the future? Now, he seems like he's kind of a kid that's kind of a, oblivious to that and and can handle that mentally but you know that with with some other names in the past that hasn't been the case and and, and they've got nothing so the big fear with Bohm is that that's what's going to happen with him is that um he's not going to figure it out defensively and then they're going to yo-yo him up and down every time he gets hot in triple a they're going to you know call him up for an injury and they're going to need to call him up and before you know it, it's two or three years down the road and they're like well remember what happened in 2020 or you know whatever with these guys so it's a they're, they've been in a catch-22 situation with a lot of promising guys. They only have so many of them in the system now, which makes those misses magnified tremendously. And they're in a they're in a win-now mode with those four main guys in you know Nolan Wheeler and Harper and Rio Muto. And that's why they can't wait per se and save money with who they have around them because they're those four guys are are right there in their prime now. They've got to they've got to win now and they're stuck because the system can't support. Uh, the rest of those positions they need. So it's a not it's not looking real good. Again, stranger things have happened in September. Who knows? They could get hot, and the Braves could realize, hey, we don't have a tune yet, or hey, we're in a pennant race and we don't belong here. But that's not the Braves' uh, mo uh, historically. So I wouldn't count on that either. Well, you also have another problem, which is Reese Hoskins comes back for a game and now is done for the season. Do, do you think that the Phillies? brought him back too quickly because of the panic that they were not doing well over the last week or was he ready and now the second question i have for you is are they now going to drag gallic bone back up before he's not ready because hoskins is gone for the season well yeah that's the fear is that you know he's won for his first 11 in triple a bone is um and he hasn't really had a lot of work ground ball work to be tested at third base so you know, there's nothing showing you, hey, he's got something figured out or he's got his head back together if it was ever a problem or whatever. So that's what's going to happen. They're they're going to need him before he is ready to go back there. Um, so that's, again, that's that's a, a fear that we've watched, you know, play over and over again. This is like a, you know, uh, Hollywood just cranking out the same sequel, uh, you know, year after year with, with certain uh, movies. It's just, you've seen this before. It doesn't work. You're not going to catch, you know, lightning in a bottle with a guy who doesn't hit at all at AAA, and he's going to magically find everything at the majors. That's just not how it works. But I don't think, you know, I think the Phillies trusted the medical staff, and they trusted Reese telling him what he was feeling. And, you know, knowing Reese, he doesn't want to, hey, let's play this conservatively, you know, knowing that his value and his pride that he, you know, he wants to be out there and. You know, who's to say it too, if they waited two weeks and put him out there that the same thing wouldn't have happened based on what the injury is. So 
they, you know, in the minds of some, they might have just said, hey, look, he could either be fined today or he could be done the first time he goes on, on, the, on the field today, tomorrow, next week, next month. We don't know. So, you know, you don't know for sure, but I don't think that they would panic to the point where they would pressure or force a player to want to go out there if they knew they were hurt. And, you know, Zach Eflin's a, a similar kind of guy. He's got a lot of pride and, you know, he's, he's in a position with the organization now because he spoke up a couple of years ago when they were trying to sell him some nonsense about how he should be pitching. And nobody knows, knows Zach Eflin better than himself. And, you know, he stood up for himself. So I think, you know, here's a guy who's, he knew he wasn't ready to, to go pitch in a major league game after just, you know, one brief rehab start. I mean, he's, again, they're so desperate that they, they need help. Um, and, and I think Eflin, you know, sounds the alarm like, hey, I'm not going to ruin my career. Um, knowing he's had all kinds of, of leg problems previously, I'm not going to ruin my career uh, just because the Phillies need me. Now, and again, not to say the Phillies approached him on that, but, you know, Zach knows knows better. And I just think Reese was probably a thought process like, hey, this is like a, a hamstring that lingers or an oblique that lingers, those kinds of things are not just going to go away magically. And the only way to find out is that let's just go play and see what happens. And if he tried that, if he sat until the middle of September and tried it, it probably would have been the same result that night. Something would have triggered it and, you know, Ghani would have been. So again, they're, they're stuck. They're, they're short. Um, yeah, they're not going to go out, you know, there's, there's nobody to go get in the system that's going to fix what, you know, the problems they have. Um, what they have is Bohm and Maton, Moniac, and, you know, it's just, you know, those guys have been called, those last two have been called up repeatedly, hardly played, and then gone back down. So there's been no development there. Well, um, let's let's hope, Tom, that the changes in the organization start to give you a little bit of a better product on the field out there to watch. Always appreciate you hopping on, even if it's not the most fun talking about how they're all playing. Uh, but we, we really appreciate your take. Got to look out for your work in the morning call. And uh, thanks for giving us a few minutes to talk it all through. Always a pleasure, guys. Thank you. Have a good weekend. Have a good one. Jeff, it's, you know, he mentions a name, Cole Irvin, that um, I know your blood still boils over the fact that. You ready? Are you ready? Yeah. He, he, he started 25 games this year. He's pitched 144.1 innings, and his ERA is 3.68. We couldn't use that, could we? No. And, and, and he only has 97 strikeouts. Let's be totally but, clear here. He was yeah. never going to be a starting pitcher with this organization. He yeah, but, that, but it wasn't because he didn't have the skill here and developed it when he went to Oakland. It was because they didn't give him the chance, and they made sure that, that, that it was clear that he wasn't a strikeout pitcher. Because the number on the gun wasn't what they wanted to see. Right. Right. They wanted strikeout pitchers. And look, let's be honest. Maybe they knew their defense would suck and they needed people to strike out because if it's put in play, the ball will get booted. Like, let's be clear. It's not just pitch. And he's left-handed, by the way. Don't don't forget that part. You bring Kyle Gibson here, who is a ground ball pitcher, and your infield boots the ball regularly. And he's not the only pitcher that's had that problem. And it's not just an infield problem. Odubel Herrera takes more bad lines to a ball than any center fielder I've seen play for the Phillies in a really long time, Jeff. So I don't really know how you solve the problem. And I don't know if 
I, look, you and I. Oh, I know how to solve that problem. If you were talking about the fielding problem, it was to take Alec Bohm out, and now it's to take D.D. Gregorius out. I have no idea. Can D.D. Gregorius play first base? Because <laughs> if he can, just move him over there and put Freddie in every day if Freddie's healthy enough to play. Well, and, I, and I don't really care about the offense at this point because it's not like these guys are giving great offense now anyway. Well, at least Freddie's a professional hitter, too. I mean. Well. But this he, is the problem. If this he hit, but he's not a. If this is the conversation you're having, you're not a playoff. Mm-hmm. The end. They're, they're not a playoff team. The, the, you know, look, we talked to Greg Dobbs a couple of weeks ago about how we were going to be having him back on to talk, talk about the playoff run. It, Playoffs. The, Playoffs. It, it's it's been a decade, and it's not happening this year. And you're wasting prime talent. I mean, you and I talked before the deadline about whether they should trade trade them off. Um, uh, I'll remind you, you wanted to trade Zach Wheeler, so. I don't. I think that they're a couple pieces away. The question is whether or not they go get the pieces in the off season now. Not because I don't like Zach Wheeler. No, I know that. I don't but, think they're putting the pieces around to win with Zach Wheeler here. Yeah, but but you you've now seen that they just tore down their farm system. Okay, and it, and they tore down something that was already crumbling. So it, it, there's. I have no faith that they're going to be able to go get prospects for trades at this point. By the way, what they need to do is they need to now spend more money in the offseason because that's the only choice they have because they have a five-year process before they have a farm system. He did not actually say what Spencer Howard said, and I think you need to. He is not a go-out-and-grab-the-headlines guy. We've talked to him a lot of times. He's into sports psychology. He measures his words. He knows what he's saying. What did the, he say about the no, Phillies? You, you go ahead. I want to hear you say because you have what young did he children. Say about the Phillies organization's efforts with him, like poly, trying to polish a turd, or I could scrap that, put my faith in these guys in this organization, and just he's really- the last. He's a, of all the people that we have interviewed in, in their farm system, he's the last person I would ever expect to say that. Absolutely, yes. he he is not the person who says that. And if he's saying that, you know, it's a problem. And he's not the only one who has lost their confidence. Look, obviously, players have to take responsibility. But part of the problem isn't just the players. It's the way that they've been treated by the organization in the process. Correct, Jeff? Yeah. Yeah. Very. yeah but you have, you have a problem now because you can't talk about baseball because we got to talk about a different kind of ball that's a little hard to hit. Look, I'm totally fine talking tennis. I'd do that anytime. Time to talk some tennis as we bring on Christopher Clary, New York Times tennis correspondent and author of the new book, The Master, The Brilliant Career of Roger Federer. Christopher, thanks for a few minutes. Congratulations on the new book. Hey, thanks very much. No, it's been a, it's been a long run to get to this one, but we're, I'm happy to be there. You know, you talk about the long run. You're somebody who followed Roger Federer on six continents. You've interviewed him more than 20 times throughout his career. Wait, can I can I ask why he hasn't followed him on the seventh continent? <laughs> there you go. Yeah, they, they haven't found a surface that works on Antarctica yet. I guess is the problem. <laughs> Got to get there. You had press seats for his first Grand Slam debut match. So tell me, you followed this long. Where did the idea for the book come from, and why was now the time to put it out? I just felt like I've had this ringside seat uh, for this whole era in men's tennis. And you know, basically started with Roger, and then Rafa Nadal came on, Novak Djokovic. And Roger has been the one I spent the most time around and with, and I think the one who was very close to the end of his career, if not you know, really, really close to the end of his career. And I just felt in the last couple of years after the loss in 2019 in the Wimbledon final to Djokovic when he had the two match points and almost got there, 
I just felt like that was going to be it was going to be hard for him to uh, to repeat that kind of success, and I felt like the main body of work was done. I just felt it was a good time to look back at his amazing career. It really has been amazing, and to look at this whole era in men's tennis. You know, it's interesting as somebody who's watched him play on the court. I learned so much more about him as the person than I did as the player. I think in an interview, you said that there were things you learned about him writing the book, including his ability to live in the present and move on to the next thing that you didn't even realize while covering him. Can you talk more about what you learned in the process of writing about someone you thought you knew so well? Well, I think my realization as I went along, and I obviously had all those interviews from the past, and I covered the sport for a long time and had all the interviews with people he'd played and his coaches over the years, but I really wanted to go back and talk to people again. So I interviewed over 80 people for the book itself in the last uh, year or so. And it was just really interesting to hear the points of view, from, especially early in his career, and how much he really struggled. I mean, Roger has this, a way of making things look easy on the court. I mean, we all know that. He makes things that are hard look easy, and and he's so smooth and elegant, and he's really developed this mask over time of somebody who's pretty zen out there. All that is a long way from where he started, and um, I think there's a lot to learn from the process that he went through. I mean, for me, just as a, an individual, to sort of see the way he struggled against his own weaknesses, his bad temper that he had, his emotions that kind of uh, betrayed him a lot. He had a real problem, you know, getting his business organization together. You know, a guy who was already number one in the world, he struggled to get that organized had a hard time renewing his Nike contract for a while. And so it's just looking back to what he's become, you know, the first guy to make a billion dollars in tennis, this guy who is this smooth icon, it was nowhere near as easy as it looked. And I think that just came through in my reporting again and again. You know, one of the things that in reading your book that we noticed was, was that you talk about how Roger likes to surround himself with positive energy and you talk, and I, I don't think we've ever actually used this word on the show. You talk about a story with a dentist. Can you tell us a little bit about that story and why you considered it so relevant to, to the story of Roger Federer? Well, you got to understand, Roger grew up in Switzerland, and Switzerland's a you know a fairly conservative place in terms of how you set up your life. I mean, it's not a place uh, where you want to take big risks. Education is very important, and uh, professional athletes, you know, for a long time there have been some stars, of course, and they like their soccer and their tennis, but uh, and their skiing. But they really don't put the athletes at the forefront of their culture, at least not traditionally. So Roger, when he was 16, he was never much of an academic student. Um, he's, a, he's a sharp guy. He's very curious in general, but he really wasn't an academic kind of guy. So he left school when he could, when he was allowed in Switzerland at 16 and became a full-time pro. So he's going to his hometown dentist in Basel, Switzerland, where he's from. And he, I think Switzerland, got, the guy asks him, you know, when he's got, he's working on Roger in the chair, uh, you know, what are you up to? What are you doing? And Roger said, well, I'm a tennis player now. Guy says, well, what else are you doing? Roger goes, no, I'm just a tennis player. The guy's like, really? Starts talking to him about that and had a lot of skepticism. And then Roger never went back to the dentist again. This is a guy he'd been going to his whole life. Just did not want to be around negative energy. He wanted to be around people who, you know, helped him believe and and made him feel confident about his choices. And I think he's, you know, stuck to that throughout his whole his whole career. He likes to bet to believe in what he's doing and have people around him. You know, constructive criticism is fine, but have people that kind of encourage that attitude. You know, in the book, it says the reason Roger is so interesting is because he's so interested. He always asks about you. And you said he can handle being on a pedestal, but he often emphasizes that he's happier being seen eye to eye. That's not something that people who watch him on the court would necessarily really know. Can you talk a little more about Roger, the person, not the player competitor? Well, yeah, I think Roger's a couple things. He's he's a pleaser in the sense he likes for people to feel good around him and he likes to please people in terms of what he does. I mean, that's, I don't think that's always a superstar athlete trait in a lot of ways. Uh, 
but he's like, he's got a lot of empathy. And I think the other thing is he's, um, he's somebody who's a bit of a, uh, he's an adapter. He's a changeling in a way where he'll be in a situation and he'll really adjust to whatever he's in. He's a guy who grew up with a South African mother and a Swiss father right near the border in uh, Switzerland, France, and Germany. He's used to different cultures and different things. And it takes a lot of pleasure in being able to shift gears. So when you're around him, you see him, he does, he kind of changes his vibe. He can kind of be in the locker room with the guys, just, you know, hanging out. He can go hang out with the corporate executives and talk the language of business now. And he's also, when you're around him face-to-face, as I've been a lot, he's very spontaneous and kind of uh, exaggerated and exuberant. And he'll go off on these tangents and crack jokes. People that are in his team talk a lot about his uh, his prankster qualities and how he'll jump out of people and hide out in closets or <laughs> behind corners at the tournaments and jump out at them. He's got this side to him you would never suspect from watching this smooth operator on the court. So that's been fun to see that that disparity. And I think in a lot of ways he had to suppress a lot of his personality to succeed in tennis and learn how to handle his emotions. And he's much closer probably to what he really is when he's off the court. You know, you talk about managing that and you talk about spontaneity in the book. I think you called it planned spontaneity and how that helps lead to his success. Can you talk about that concept a little bit? Because it seemed like the way that he lives his life that way actually made an impact on you as the writer. Yeah, I'm really glad you asked that. Um, I feel like that's, you, know, you can't take everything from this book about how you could operate it in your own life because we're not going to be super quick and have incredible hand-eye coordination and be able to you know, travel the world and, and make this kind of living in tennis. But what he has done is he's done a very good job, I think, of learning about himself, what works well for him. And one of those things is he really needs to be physically and mentally fresh. He may not have that same ability as a lot of some other guys might you know, go hard for a long, a lot of time. He needs these breaks. He called himself in one of our interviews, said, I'm a Leo. And Leos are people who, when they're in the spotlight, they're fine, but they need their breaks away. And I'm really like that. And I think that's what he's done very smartly through the years to keep his body and his mind fresh. And that's why he was able to play so well until his late 30s. You know, he's 40 now, and he was a quarterfinalist at Wimbledon just about a month ago. So I think that's been a key to his success. And that's something for me, I realized, you know, that's uh, – but do something you love for a long time, it's smart to uh, to kind of ration out the things that you love and and make sure you have your best energy when you head into them. You've had you've had a chance to have a front row seat to his career and his life for such a long time. And and when I watch tennis, I see the intensity of players, especially since it's a, it's a solo person's game. It's not a team sport. And how does he juggle? the humility that you see of him off the court with the intensity that you need to have and the, and the competitive you need, competitiveness you need to have at, to be at that level as a tennis player? Well, that's, a, that's another good question. And I think in some ways it's not really a solo sport a lot of the time anymore. These teams these players have around them at the top level especially are pretty complete and pretty big now by tennis standards in the past. I mean, he's got four or five people walking with him when he walks through the, uh, the stadiums and the practice courts because he's got his physio, his fitness trainer with him before tournaments, his two coaches. So it's there is a team behind him. But when you're right on the court in the men's game, when you're out there, it's, it's you. And I think Roger is somebody, uh, part of the reason why he had problems with his emotions when he was young was he really has this deep competitive streak and he had really high expectations for himself and he just couldn't manage it all. So I think what you're seeing also is that he had this nervous energy when he was young too. There's a story in the book about one of his early coaches trying to get him to sit still and stand still and just talk to him. And he was so almost hyperactive that he couldn't, he couldn't do it. He had to get the ball in his hand or the racket in his hand and go play. So I think he's channeled a lot of that energy, which is a tremendous amount of energy. And I think uh, those emotions into that competitive arena 
I found a way to really not show it on the outside, but really I'll channel it all on the inside. And I think this was that, that flame has kept burning all this time. You know, you, you mentioned the emotions and the book talked a lot about what he did mentally and physically to prepare himself and really the advancements that he made with his trainer on fitness and working with sports psychologists before it was time. Uh, can you talk about that and how he was sort of ahead of his time in terms of recognizing the importance of those areas of his game? Yeah, and the sports psychologist aspect, I think that's something in other parts of the world has been front and center for quite a while now and something that's been... I think accepted by athletes, not so much the case in Switzerland where Roger grew up. And so I think for him, it, it was a bit of a bold move to go that direction. And then I think his, he felt that way. His you know, boyhood coach who sadly died in an accident in 2002 felt that way as well. So did his parents. I think they felt they really couldn't help him at that point. He was having trouble managing everything. So they sought out this, uh, you know, pretty young uh, PhD student, a guy who was a uh, just changing the sports psychology, having been in like a front row striker for division one soccer team in Basel, Roger's hometown. So I think they felt Roger could relate to him. I think it turned out to be a very important meeting for him. I think it gave him some of the tools he needed to be able to start to manage his emotions and in matches, like simple things like where to put your eyes, where to put your gaze, how to kind of manage the whole scope of your vision. So you can keep your eyes concentrated on what you're doing. And I think that was sort of the start of a pretty long process, several years to manage it. Ultimately, I think he decided that he he wanted to change, and I think part of it was the image he wanted to project to the world. He knew he was going to be a prominent player, and he saw a video of himself with Murat Safin, a really combustible Russian player, <laughs> you know, throwing rackets and swearing, and saw the video and said, I don't want to be that guy. And so I think he finally, having put a lot of things in place, made that final step and became you know something closer to a Zen master. And the fitness trainer you mentioned, Peter Paganini, critical to Roger's career, their big innovation was to match up all the movements and the fitness work really to tennis. Because tennis is an unusual sport. It's this explosive endurance. You're playing for five, 10 seconds, and then you stop for 25 seconds. Five, 10 seconds, you stop for 25. And you do this for three or four or five hours in the best of five tennis. So Pierre, who was from a track and field background, looked at this and said, this isn't logical. We're doing all these you know, conventional training methods. Let's find something that really works for tennis. So he put Roger on the court a lot, a lot of motion that really matched and mirrored what he was doing on the court. And also importantly, Roger's a, you know, he's got a, not a short attention span, but he likes novelty. He likes things to surprise him. So Pierre knew that, and he's been around Roger since he was 14 years old. And he's found a way to keep it fresh for Roger and continually surprise him, new ideas, new thoughts, and new innovations. And a lot of people have copied Pierre since then. Well, before we let you go, we, we know that you're, on, you're heading out to one of my favorite spectator sports. There, to me, there is no better thing to go to than early rounds of the U.S. Open. What do you look mm. forward to most going out to the early rounds? What should we be looking for? And who do you expect since Serena and Roger aren't there? Who is it that we should be looking for that's going to be holding up the trophy at the end of this? Yeah, first time in 25 years, guys, there's been no Williams sister or a Federer or an Adal at the U.S. Open. So it's, a, it's definitely a change of the era, although Djokovic is, is there. Big story, obviously, is the Grand Slam he's going for. All four in the same year. Hasn't been done by a man in over 50 years since Rod Laver in 69. But the first week, you're right. I'm happy to hear you say that. I think tennis is one of the great spectator sports live. Tennis, sometimes on TV, is uh, diluted. The power of it, the speed of it, the reaction time and all that. So I just love getting close to the game. It's been a frustrating year and a half with the pandemic. Not being able to go to many tournaments in person. So I'm definitely looking forward to that. And I feel like... Um, now, the U.S. Open right now, uh, it's Novak's game, but these young guys coming up 
a lot of Americans don't know them very well yet, and they have a lot of talent, this next generation of players. They're calling them the next four, guys like Zverev and Berrettini and Medvedev and Tsitsipas. And um, I think uh, they're getting close to ready. So it'll be interesting to watch those guys in Doulon. And then on the women's side, there's just so much depth. I mean, there are, there are 13 Grand Slam champions in the draw uh, at the U.S. Open. So it's going to be a you know an embarrassment of riches in terms of players you can watch. I urge you to watch Barbora Krajikova, who's not known in the U.S., great doubles player who won the French Open in singles this year from the Czech Republic. And Coco Goff is, uh, has improved a lot, and she's 17 still, very young, and has a pretty tough draw. Opening round plays against uh, a Polish player named Magdalenette, and then she plays either Sloane Stevens or Madison Keys in the second round. So a pretty tough start for, uh, for Coco. The book is The Master, The Brilliant Career of Roger Federer. Christopher Clary, thank you so much for the time. I encourage everybody to go out and get it and wish you the best of luck with it and hope we can talk to you again sometime. I hope so too. Really appreciate it, guys. Thanks so much. Jeff, that was, uh, that was pretty cool. Getting, I learned so much about Roger Federer reading this book that had nothing to do with how he played on the court. Well, you know, every once in a while, I'll listen to the, the post-match interviews that they do on the court which they you know they don't do that in a lot of sports and he always comes across as just total humility like there's something about him that is completely genuine and you don't see that especially in tennis we're used to like the bad boys of tennis especially on the men's side and and he is the antithesis of that and and it's just the the book is is so good in, in portraying the person that it's definitely worth reading it. It definitely comes through in the book. And uh, yeah, I've, I've enjoyed it. I'm not done yet. I don't read that fast. It's, it's 402 pages. That's a lot for me, Jeff. Yeah. And and, and I got to tell you, um, I mean this. Uh, tennis is not my favorite sport. Um, but but there has been no sporting event other than the you know game six clinching of the World Series that I have ever been to that is more fun than going to a round of the U.S. Open early. Yes, not not the the end. I have I've been there for the end, but I got to tell you, you can buy a grounds pass for the first week and you can go to all the courts except for the main court. So you're not going to see Serena and stuff like that when they're playing. But you can go to these small courts and sit right up close and watch these up and coming stars and watch that ball whiz by your head and hope that they don't errantly hit it. You, you um, and it's amazing to watch. You sit right at the chain link fence there. It, it's, those, is it, it, it really is one of the greatest events that you can go see. Sarah and I went, uh, we were just dating. It was long before we were married. We went up there for the day and neither of us had ever been. And it was just the coolest experience to see all those matches early on. We Obviously, we went to the main stadium for a match, which is cool too. But mm-hmm. being able to walk around those back courts, you can just go anywhere. There's tennis everywhere that you turn. It's just a cool experience for people. And then if you and then if you get bored, you can walk across the street and you can go to the city field. That's right. You can go mm-hmm. see the mutts. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's leave it there. <laughs> we'll go to a break. When we come back, we'll close for about 10 minutes. Stick with us. Operating engineers are the men and women that move mountains. And the Engineers Labor Employer Cooperative, ELEC, puts them to work. They create opportunities for the men, women, and union signatory contractors of Local 825, repaving our roads, keeping our homes bright and warm, and even building our favorite team stadium. We understand infrastructure. That's why ELEC and Local 825 are ready to get to work. 
you going to talk now that we're back? Yes. Yeah, so, so, so you, you mentioned, you mentioned the, the Mets or the Mutts Second. And, and, and Mr. Met, I, I find totally entertaining ever since he decided to flip the bird. <laughs> but when we were out in Cincinnati, they have their version of Mr. Met, which is Mr. Red. Okay. Who, who is very creepy. If you look at him, <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm not going to describe what kind of crime he, he looks like he committed. But he looks like he might have committed a bunch of them. He's very disturbing. <laughs> we need to get Brandon on to break this down at some point and figure out the mascot standards. <laughs> Step up the mascot talk there because I know that you are very excited for the third preseason football game tonight for the Philadelphia Eagles against the New York. You know, to be fair, <laughs> usually that it's me that sits there and says, I don't care about preseason games and I'm not going to watch it. Um, but before, when we were prepping before the show, you forgot that the game was tonight. In fairness, I did have it in the prep doc, but I completely forgot yeah. that the game was tonight. Maybe it's because the Eagles seem to have forgotten that the game was tonight. Yeah. Did a big well, if you're going to ask me if I'm watching it, I'm guessing five minutes after this show is over, I'm not going to be awake. So there's no before you ask. Not talking again, but is it a surprise to you that Jalen Hurts hasn't played more? And not, not only is it no. Is it a big deal? Like there's no, you just Twitter fewer and people. Like, yes. Don't... How nobody's playing anybody. This is, this is the most useless preseason ever. They cut out a game. And for some reason, the coaches and the players decided we're just going to cut out playing. So the only people that are playing are people that won't even have a football card when the season starts. Well, and that's sort of a problem because if you look at the backups that have played for the Eagles, mm-hmm. no death, Jeff. <laughs> you can't judge anything by this it, it, it it's literally every coach has just decided the answer is to make sure nobody gets hurt well that's sort of what the goal is at this point I, look i've told you i don't really have expectations for the team to be exceptionally good this season so i won't really be disappointed either way i am excited for the season to start though college football starts this weekend are you getting pumped to see real game <laughs> This was the wrong week <laughs> if I was getting pumped <laughs> other than with IVs. I told you I could make a joke out of this, huh? Okay. I'd like to point yeah, out yeah. for our listeners. So here's the thing. I did not want to make jokes out of Jeff not feeling well because I didn't want to sound heartless. But before the show, Jeff just kept making jokes about it. And I go, how you expect me not to make jokes? And it's jokes about me. It's not jokes about this because I, I, I will tell you, I, I am, I can't. The one thing I will tell you that has come out of this is I'm angry and I'm, I am pissed at anybody that is not going to take this seriously. You have to take this seriously for not just for yourself, but for your loved ones. Well, let's talk about taking it seriously. The Titans have nine on the COVID list, including quarterback Ryan Tannehill and coach Frabel. To- now, now they say that Tannehill was vaccinated. Yeah. So- yeah. Your example, there can be breakthrough cases. That- no, the, the, here, but here's the here's the ones that annoy me. And the, we now have a year and a half of pent up frustration that I have not talked about this, even though you've asked me to talk about it week after week. So for our listeners, for our listeners, I have texted Jeff regularly stories about sports and COVID. And at some mm-hmm. point along the way, Jeff said, I don't want to read these stories. I don't want to talk about it. And we've done our best to I told you not to even send them to me Yes, to make it a mm-hmm. cursory issue when we mentioned it, not to focus on it because Jeff hasn't wanted to. And that all changed this week. Yeah. And I'm not, I'm not going to turn into preaching about it every week, but I will tell you when I, when I, when I read, what is it? McKenzie and, and Beasley up in Buffalo 
tweeting, oh, I got caught. What do you mean you got caught? Here's an idea. One, when, when did teammate not mean teammate anymore? I've heard about teammates saying that they would run through walls. I've heard football players say that even though they know they might get CTE, it was worth it, but they're not willing to get a shot. Really? It doesn't make any sense to me. Are you having a harder time watching these arguments now because of getting it? Yes, because because I'm, I'm now a live, hopefully a living, continued living example of what it means to get the vaccine. I know somebody, some people turn around and go, well, look, he was vaccinated and still got sick. No, I'm alive because I got vaccinated. There's a big difference. So the end- and as much as going through this hasn't been fun, the fact is, it looks like I'm going to go through this and, and get out the other side. The thing that I'm interested about, uh, the NBA informed personnel that if you're within 15 feet of players or refs, you have to be fully vaccinated. Those rules I can understand, but I'm going to ask lawyer Jeff right now, the, the conundrum. You have something like the Vegas Raiders, okay? We've only got like three minutes left, but the Vegas Raiders are owned by a public entity, okay? The, they're a taxpayer-funded organization that's owned by a public group, not a private group, the stadium itself. Right. They are saying you need to be vaccinated to go into that stadium. Will that hold up in court? I can't tell you whether it's going to hold up in court, but it's a private organization. They're allowed to do it. They need to do what they need to do to make sure they have a safe environment. My question to you is, why haven't the Sixers done it? Look, I've been. Surprised. Why haven't the Phillies done it? How hard? How hard would this be? Look, you. For anybody that thinks they have a choice, you do. I heard Sean McDermott say, "Yeah, you have a choice." My choice is to make sure that I protect the people around me. You have a choice. If you don't want to get it, then fine. Your choice should be not to still hurt other people and stay inside. Make people show a vaccination. What's wrong with it? I don't, I don't disagree with you at all. I'm yeah. just asking whether some of these attempts to put limits on, you know, the baseball's had a hard enough time, the Phillies getting their players to be vaccinated. Now they keep having events for vaccinations at the stadium, right? Don't have a mandate to go to the game to be vaccinated. I wonder if or wear your mask, you know, they they say you're supposed to wear the mask if you don't, but how do they know? Well, that's all, all it takes is one person to spread this. If you saw what happened at, what was it in Australia? It turned out it was one person who flew into the country and the cab driver supposedly spread it. That's all it takes. Do you think that we will, I think eventually what will have to happen is the local or state entities that will enforce laws that force these private entities to take action. We shouldn't uh, have to force anything. People should just do the right thing. That's uh, my answer. I understand and I agree with you. I want yeah. to close on a on a happier note. Um, let's talk golf. Preseason's almost over. <laughs> Jeff Bryson and uh, Kepka are going to get along. Are you surprised? They're going to play. Oh, isn't that sweet? I can I can just see the Valentine's cards floating back and forth. Huh? Meanwhile, Phil Mer- uh, Phil Mickelson is cranky pants. He does not like that the USGA is going to limit the length of his driver. He thinks it's pathetic. Uh, it's amateur hour and they're trying to make golf less fun. Do you care, Jeff? <laughs> Phil's going to get his way. That's at the, at the end of his day. Phil's going to explain it. They're going to have to come up with some justification if they're going to shorten his club. Are you looking forward to the Ryder cup? I know you're, you're a guy that loves that every year. You, you I think it's, I think it's a lot of fun. I don't know. Are, are there going to be as many fans there? Cause the Ryder cup is all about the fans. The Ryder cup without fans is useless. 
Well, probably depend on where what state it's in this year. I don't know where it is. That'll depend on the limitations. Is 20, it in Whistling Straits? Is that where it is this I year? I think it's in Wisconsin, I think. About 15 seconds. Any final thoughts, Jeff? Say something profound. Uh, Phillies are going to win tonight. <laughs> Way to go out on a Against the Diamondbacks. <laughs> Start your weekend in style. Have a great one. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Bye.